Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. This morning, we're going to continue in this teaching, in this understanding of Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through chapter 3, verse 11. But I want you to understand where we were last week so that we can uh, begin to dive deeper into the understanding of where we are this week. Uh, I shared with you that sometimes you have to know what somebody's going to say before you know what they're trying to say. Or uh, sometimes you have to see the forest in order to navigate through the trees. And so last week we, we came away with four principles that were really important principles uh, of this section of Paul's teaching. The first principle is this, that the condition or the status that you and I uh, found ourselves in or were in when the relationship began between us and God was sinner. The status that we came into this relationship with was sinner. And I think that that is a detrimental and important understanding. Uh, If you believe that that there are some who are righteous, then the scripture tells you Jesus didn't come for you. How many of you know that? The scripture says that he came for the sinner, not for the righteous. So so I know we try to wiggle out of being labeled sinner in the modern church today, but Jesus came for sinners. So I want everybody to understand that's who we were. When this relationship began. So first and foremost, the principle is we were sinners when this relationship began. The second principle is what I call the but God principle. (laughs) We were sinners, but God. We were sinners, but God uh, loves us enough that he died for sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, we love to quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. God so loved the world. What Jesus was doing when he came to ascend to the cross was he was loving his enemy. We were sinners. Remember that. Uh, Of course, we understand that we're all created in the image of God. How many of us know that? We were created in the image of God. How many of you know that we distorted that image when we sinned? We ruined that image. So yes, when we're trying to love the world around us, it's really important that we understand that everybody has intrinsic value, that everybody bears the image of God, but we also need to be honest that they, just like we, tainted that image and are in need of a Savior. So, important understandings. We came into this relationship as a sinner, but God, our life, church, whether we understand this or not, our life is a result of God's mercy, not our merit. Our life is a result of God's mercy, not a result of our merit. Verses 13 through 15 communicate this clearly in Colossians 2. Look at what God did in this story again. He made you alive together with Christ. He forgave us all our sins and transgressions. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He took it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them. He triumphed over them through Christ or through the cross. Man, that is an amazing series of things that God has done. What did we do? We came with our deadness and transgressions and uncircumcision. Yippee! 
well, how awesome were we there? So number one, we came into the relationship as sinners. Number two, the but God principle. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Number three, we were saved from something, but we were also saved to something. Church, from sin to righteousness, from death to life, from enemy to friend. What an amazing idea. Now here's where, the, here's where the paradox comes in. Here's where something really starts to fester in us. Yes, we were enemies and yes, we are friends according to the scripture. But we were also captive and now we're servants of the Most High God. I hear people say this all the time. I'm not a servant. I am a friend of God. You are both. <laughs> Smile. What's the paradox of scripture is that the greatest freedom you and I can ever have is in servitude to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? Bob Dylan, the great prophet. Uh, again, he said it best when he said, you're going to serve somebody, whether it's the devil or the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. You might as well serve somebody who, as a master, wants to befriend you. Amen? So, number three was that we're saved from something and we're saved to something. We see this all over chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then the fourth principle that the Apostle Paul gives us is if all this is true, if, if our entire life is not predicated on our righteousness, but on God's faithfulness, if our righteousness is predicated on the work of God, if all of this is true, why in the world would we place our trust in anything else? Why would we do it? And yet, we're tempted to every day. And we're going we're gonna to expand on this as we get further into the study today. Why would a free people desire bondage again? But guess what? That truth, a free people desiring bondage again, is as old as the Exodus. The people of Israel wandering around in the desert and going, yeah, but there was, there was at least shelter back home. There was better food back home. So you want to go back to servanthood? You want to go back to slavery? You want to go back to pain? You want to go back to sin just because it's easier? And the answer for a lot of people is, yeah. Yeah, I would like to go back because it is far easier. But we are not those people. God is teaching us through the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of his spirit, through the word of God, that if we are free, then we are free indeed. And we should live that way. Amen? Okay, so today we're going to get down into the details, and this is going to present a lot more like a Bible study than it presents like a sermon, so I hope you're not expecting some sort of crazy rah-rah moment at the end, not that I'm that guy anyway, um, but I want you to open your Bibles, I want you to traverse through your Bibles with me. We're not going to do a, a lot of turning, but I am going to have you turning to Corinthians and uh, probably turning to uh, Galatians as well at some point. But just bear with me as we do the page turning. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 16. And we're going to spend our time largely in verses 16, 17, and 18. And then we'll walk through the rest of it. Here again is what the Word of God says. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one, verse 18, keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, in the worship of angels, 
taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. The first thing that I want you to see is what we, uh, what we observe in verse 16, the beginning, and in verse 18, the beginning. And they both have important lessons to be learned in them. Verse 16 says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge. And if we're not reading this carefully, what we're tempted to do is say, Paul, how can I stop people from judging me? And Paul is not telling you to stop people from judging you. People will always judge us. Do you know that? People will always judge us. People are always going to have an opinion. People are always, even people who claim to be godly, are going to have an opinion of how our spiritual life is going or our spiritual growth is going. But what Paul said in verse 16 is no one is to act as your judge. That's a statement of fact. No one is to act as your judge. Why? Because the Apostle Paul wants us to understand, God is the only judge. I've said it a thousand times that that we don't get the gavel. Amen? We don't get the gavel. Because here's what would happen if Nathan had the gavel. I'd send everybody to hell on Tuesday and then regret it on Wednesday. Because that's, it's judgmentalism. It's, It's some brokenness inside of my heart. And so I'd slam the gavel down. Now, I'm going to expand on this to what this doesn't mean in just a second. But what Paul says here is no one is to act as your judge. The Colossians were struggling. People were judging them left and right. And here's where we tend to stop having faith in Jesus. We listen to the judgments of men. Don't we? We listen to their judgments and we say maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus is wrong. Maybe I need Jesus plus all these other things in order to be righteous, in order to stand firm in the gospel. Maybe I need what these people are saying. But what were Paul's four principles? The way you came into this relationship was a sinner. Why is it that God would say, you, you came into it as a sinner, but I really didn't save you. I need you to clean yourself up first. He doesn't say that. He calls us while we're broken, and yet, saving us from something, he saves us to something, which is righteousness, which is the demand on our lives for holiness. Verse 16 is a statement of fact. No one is to act as your judge. The situation in Colossae proves that people still act as our judge. It indicates judgment still occurs in every aspect or every facet of our life, even in the church, because that's who this letter was written to. Our life experience confirms it as well. That's what I gathered from your amens, that we still uh, feel this a bit of judgment. The issue, though, is the Scripture tells us that God alone is our judge. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. This is really important for us. It doesn't mean that we don't still submit to one another, and it also doesn't mean that there aren't regulations. There aren't commands or calls for our life. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And here's what's happening as you're turning. The Apostle Paul is coming off of uh, some input where people are saying, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, all of these different uh, ideas, these these, uh, adherents to to celebrity pastors, even in the first century, right? And so they're, they're following these particular teachers, and Paul is saying, no, 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 you're getting it all wrong. Apollos may plant the seed, I may water the seed, but who causes the increased church? 
God causes the increase. It's always God who's bringing about the increase. It's under that context, it's with that framework that Paul in chapter 4 says, let a man regard us in this manner. Who is the us referring to? He's not talking to general Christians. He's talking to teachers right now. He says, let men refer to us as teachers in this way, as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. That's a pastor's job. Okay, we're going to go on. Verse 2, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards, look at that word, required, required of stewards, that one be found trustworthy. But to me, Paul says, to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, back to the church, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. The first thing, even though God is our judge, we have to remember is that the scripture teaches us that we are to submit to one another. Over and over the scripture tells us that we are to be sharpened by one another. Matthew 18 teaches that we're to hold one another accountable through church discipline. Uh, Galatians tells us that we're to correct a brother with gentleness. The book of James says that it is a good thing for someone to turn a brother from their sin. This is what we're called to do inside of the church. But you can do all of those things without condemnation. And we ought to do all of those things without condemnation, which is the term for judgment that we're actually prohibited from practicing, right? We are not a condemning people. Instead, we're a gently correcting people. In this, the Apostle Paul tells everybody that God is the judge. But I want you to, I want you to recognize something. He says, for to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. Let me interpret that in the 21st century church. That means this is what pastors say in interpreting that that word. You can judge me, but I don't care what you have to say. It's between me and God. Pastors have taken the same cue as hip-hop artists and music uh, phenoms, all of these different people, because what we say, the phrase we say, is God's my only judge. That may be true, but your attitude is completely wrong. Yes, God is your judge, but a humble attitude is necessary. We could read Paul's words this way. We could read it to say, I don't really care what you have to say. But that's not Paul's heart. What Paul is saying in this is that I care very little to be examined by you. Go ahead and examine me. I do know who holds my future. I do know who holds me firmly within his hand. And that is God. It's not you. But go ahead and judge. Go ahead and pass judgment. Why? Because in that passing of judgment and in that receiving of that, you may actually find something you do wrong. King David was found in a spot like this where he was, uh, he was ousted from his throne and Absalom was usurping that throne. And in one account, it says that a man was throwing stones at him on this journey. Okay, He was walking on the road and a man was throwing stones. And his right-hand man said, you want me to go and off his head? Yeah, you want me to take care of that guy for you? I like that guy, just to be honest with you. I like that guy. You want me to take care of the stone thrower? And David actually says, no, 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 no. He says, 
What if he's right? What if God sent this man to humble me? Now let me ask you a simple question. Is that your heart naturally when you face criticism? It's not my heart. It's not my heart and I've had a lot to apologize for over years. Why? Because what I, what I receive, I often, uh, I often rule out as the opinions of men. Who cares what you have to say? It's between me and God. Wrong heart. There may be some measure of truth in it, but it's a completely wrong heart. So Paul goes on and he says, It is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. He stood before many human courts. He says, In fact, I don't even examine myself. The idea presented here is what, does it, what good does it do if I'm harsh on myself? What's the point of this? God is the one who has to correct me. He's the one who has to shape me. So it is clear that what Paul is saying is that, is that he is examined by God alone. But his heart is not the way we present his heart. He's not being rebellious here, okay? So he goes on and he says, For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Now, does that sound arrogant to you? <laughs> I don't think I'm guilty of anything. Right? We, we all do this, especially husbands to wives. Right? I'm not guilty of anything. Ah, but look at what Paul's next line is. Yet I am not by this acquitted. First rule of thumb here is to stay humble, even in criticism. The second rule of thumb that you need to understand is just because you have weighed yourself, you have measured yourself, and you found yourself awesome, it doesn't mean you're awesome. Right? Thanks, Marty. <laughs> right? It doesn't mean you're awesome. You're not acquitted. Who is the one who examines you? It's God. You see, if we lived by this kind of heart, it would change everything. We would understand what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. No one is to act as my judge. But even if they do, I know that God is my judge. I know that he is in control. The second principle that we have to understand, not only are we to submit to one another, but we also have to understand that we don't get to make the rules up as we go along. Look at what it says about pastors here. It says, let a man regard us, these were the ministers of the day, regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You know what a pastor should steward? The mysteries of God, not the mysteries of his own little brain. And I emphasize little sometimes because our brains don't really work well. They're not as big as we think they are. Our mystery that we're stewarding is the mystery of God. And God has revealed it in Christ and we are to communicate that mystery. Now look at what he goes on to say in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 4. He says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. You know what I desire God to say to me? The same thing you do. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be known for being trustworthy to his word. I want to be known for stewarding well the mysteries of God. Do you know where the mysteries of God are found? The Bible. It's not in your little closet prayer time where you get to make something up that's different than what God said. Sorry. You're out of luck on this. You're out of luck on this. Your inclinations, your uh, images, your things that God is speaking to you must be vetted by the word of God or you're not being a trustworthy servant. 
You're not being a trustworthy servant. So God has told us what this looks like. So the first one is that no one is to act as our judge. You can turn back to Colossians. No one is to act as, as your judge. So that they're not your judge. This is a statement of fact. Now, people are still going to judge you. We are still to submit to one another. Uh, it does not mean that we get to make up the rules, and this should be our governing principle. Scripture is our guide. Fellow believers are our accountability, and God is our judge. That's the way we should live our lives. So Colossians 2. Now let's look down to verse 18. Here's what he goes on to say. Things, uh, let's, let's therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. All of those have Jewish overtones clearly in them. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 18, this was the second focus that I wanted you to see. Let no one keep defrauding you. Now this is your call to action. People are going to judge you and you don't have to listen to their voices. But here's what you need to do. You need to stop the people that are trying to defraud you. People who are trying to manipulate you with their crafty ideas of God's word, you need to be bold enough. I know we live in a, we live in a culture that does not like confrontation. You need to look people square in the eye and say that's not what the Bible says. How many of you are ready to do that? Oh. Hand shrink, right? Hands shrink because it's challenging. Because what people are going to do is they're going to criticize you. Guess what people are going to do when you say that? They're going to judge you. <laughs> and guess what? God's still your judge. Let him judge. Let him judge. Let him ridicule you. Let him make fun of you. Let him beat you. Let him, let him uh, uh, you know, call you names. Guess what? Jesus said it was going to happen. You know why the American church doesn't face the persecution the rest of the church in the world faces? Because we're chickens. We laugh, but I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. It's so sad we say, I'm willing to die for Jesus. And we're not even willing to say, here's what the gospel is. And God says that that's wrong. Don't, don't lie to yourself. It does no good. We need to stand clearly on God's word. So he says this. He says, he says let no one keep defrauding you. Guess what is uh, expressly stated there? People can defraud you. People can defraud you? Yes, people can defraud you. Nathan, hold on a second. <laughs> people can defraud me. What about Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Isn't Romans 8 true? Romans 8 is true. Absolutely it's true. But this isn't talking about someone stealing your salvation. This isn't talking about someone taking your freedom. This is someone talking about why you shouldn't trust in Jesus who gave you salvation and freedom to begin with. How are we saved, church? By grace through faith. What are these false teachers trying to do? They're trying to get your faith. They were trying to get the Colossians' faith off of Jesus. Romans 8 speaks nothing of you removing your faith from in Jesus Christ. Speaks nothing of that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Neither height nor depth nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come. We love to add things to the word of God. But God says, you cannot trust me. That's your problem. 
And these people are defrauding these people. And I'm going to prove it to you even further inside of this text. He's not talking about somebody stealing something. He's talking about us not holding fast. Us not standing firm. He's talking about us not enduring to the end. Do you know what all of those statements, stand firm, hold fast, endure to the end, have to do with? Faith, not righteousness. Jesus is your righteousness. He has called you to obey. That's wonderful. We're going to do this all the days of our life. But every time it talks about enduring to the end, it's talking about you stay in the faith. Trust Jesus. Now, there's many groups in the church that don't believe that that's a problem. There's a perseverance of the saints. There's an enduring to the end. 1 Timothy seems to contradict that idea. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is challenging, but it's important because Paul's warning to the Colossians was not willy-nilly. He wasn't just throwing out words so that he could be recorded in the annals of time through Scripture. That's not what he's doing. He has a, he has a goal here, and he has a serious concern for the people that he's ministering to. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Look at that first line. But the Spirit explicitly says, underline it, please. But the Spirit explicitly says, he doesn't imply it. This is a fact. He explicitly says it. That in latter times, some will fall away from the righteousness that they get by their works. That has nothing to do with this. They will fall away from the faith. But here's where it gets eerie. Because what Paul said to his young son in the faith, Timothy, is the same thing he's writing to the Colossians because the same deceivers are there doing their job. He says, some will fall away from the faith. In order to fall away from faith, you have to be in faith. Otherwise, you're not falling away from it. Pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, here's what most people conclude. They go, okay, we got to keep our eyes out for deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You're not going to see spirits, number one. And number two, they are active, but you're not going to see them. Number two, doctrines of demons doesn't come in a book well-labeled, okay? Right? Nobody sells it from a pulpit and says, here, buy my doctrines of demons book. What they do is they package it to look just like the Bible. They package it to look like a theology book. They package it to look like all the things that you read in popular reading. Please be careful. Please be careful. So listen to what happens. This, all those deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons come by means of something. Look at the next line. By means of the hypocrisy of liars. Now we can see those people. <laughs> we'll see them. We might not catch on to their lies quick. But look at what he says. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now look at what these people say. Men who forbid marriage, these people are crazy. I can't live without being married. I'm just throwing this out to you, okay? God said it wasn't good for man to be alone, and he meant Nathan. It is not good for Nathan to be alone. I probably wouldn't eat. I would still bathe. Don't worry about that. But I, I would not eat. I, it'd just be bad, right? And so, and my girls would be so out there. Anyway, okay. By means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage, and 
Look, this is Colossian language. Advocate, abstaining from foods which God created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. He goes on to talk about everything that God has called clean, being clean. What a powerful idea. You see, what is happening here is a warning to Timothy that people can walk away from the faith. How can they walk away from the faith? Because of liars, because of deceivers, because of people who continue to promote doctrines that, boy, oh boy, look pretty good. What is my statement that I say all the time? God will not fool you with a $3 bill. The devil won't fool you with a $3. God won't fool you at all. The devil won't fool you with a $3 bill. Why? Because he knows you know those don't exist. Instead, what he does is he counterfeits everything really well. This is why you won't receive a book, Doctrines of Demons. You'll hear a teacher telling you lies that twist and turn and pull you away from what God says. God's word, you can, you can judge me, it's fine. But God's word clearly says that the spirit of God expressly says in the end times, people will fall away from the faith. That's his word. You don't have to worry about my interpretation. Just deal with God's word. So what follows in verse uh, 18 after this is... Uh, labeled in two different ways. Number one, how the fraud is perpetrated, how this false teaching in Colossians is perpetrated, and two, the character of these deceivers. So remember, the fraud is perpetrated through lying, deceiving, hypocritical people. We can add that to the second list, but listen to what it says in verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. By delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. The Colossians were being judged. But we see from later in the, in the text, they were being judged for what they did not handle, did not taste, did not touch. They were, being, they were being judged for obeying certain rules that they were supposed to obey according to these false teachers. All of those had to do with Jewish practices, but all those Jewish practices were a mere shadow of the fulfillment which was in Jesus Christ, okay? So why do I point that out? Why is that important? Because uh, what we are often led astray by are godly intended things that don't find their root in the source, okay? Let me explain what I mean by this. If, if I dangle before you the shadow but I never point to the source, which is Jesus, we have a problem, don't we? If we were playing a game of hide-and-seek, I know, big kid here. If we were playing a game of hide-and-seek and I was hiding behind something and all that you could see was my shadow, if you ran up and touched my shadow, am I it now? No, because you got to find me. you got to go to the source, don't you, right? So, so the same thing is happening here. You can go through all of these rituals and these things, but if you don't understand they point, the shadow traces back to Jesus, you've missed the point. You're still not there. So these ideas are well-meaning ideas, even in some cases, things that were passed down by God, but they found their fulfillment in Christ. And so what Jesus has said is finished, we need to have faith that it's finished, church. It all gets back to faith. It always does get back to faith. So the Colossians are being judged because they're not adhering to these rules. But the problem is they were taught that the fulfillment was found in Jesus. It's the deceivers who think the fulfillment is found in the shadows. 
That's not what God says, okay? Turn to verse 17 or flip down to 17 in Colossians 2. Notice he says this, and this is just food for thought. I want you to study it this week if if this is the kind of person you are. Things which are a mere shadow, what's that next line say, church? Of what is to come. Where are we at in the story of redemption history in Colossians? Has Jesus died yet? Yes. Has Jesus risen yet? Did Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father yet? Yes, he has. Did the day of Pentecost happen? Are we filled with the Spirit yet? Did the church begin yet? Yeah, he's writing to the church. All the answers are yes. And yet, he speaks in the future tense. He says, these are a mere shadow of what is to come. I thought Jesus fulfilled everything. Jesus is fulfilling everything. Are we glorified yet, church? No. (laughs) Still working. Jesus is still working to this day. He is still interceding on our behalf. He is still working. And the Spirit of God is still working on our behalf. There are things yet to be fulfilled, what scholars call the now and the not yet. The not yet. There's things coming. Things we're waiting for. But guess what? All of the rules, all of the festivals, all of the things, they point to something. Jesus. They don't point to a really cool religious experience. They don't point to you feeling closer to God because you do more spiritual activities than the other guy. It's not what they are. They were always intended to point you to Jesus, which is to say, when you see the shadow, look up. When you see the shadow, look to the Savior who cast that shadow for you. Okay, so the Colossians were being judged. How is the fraud being perpetrated? By lies and deception, and those lies are very crafty lies. Number two, the character of the deceivers, the people Paul is warning about, are characterized by self-abasement, the worship of angels, and taking their stand on visions that they have seen. And there's important language here because he keeps saying he, he, he. It's my interpretation of this that he has a particular person in mind, a particular man in mind, who is sowing these seeds of discord. This is not unheard of in the text of Scripture. In 3 John, we see Diotrephes being the same problem. There's a guy who's standing in the way. Okay, So it might just be one person in your life, but they are, they are trying to defraud you. And Paul says, don't let it happen. You tell them to zip it. You tell them to, to, to talk to the hand. Okay, there's, there's my modern reference, okay? Self-abasement, the worship of angels, and taking his stand on visions he's seen. Before we go into the detail, let me, uh, let me connect some dots here. The deceivers have come in. They are touting how humble they are, self-abasement. They are going on and on through their false humility, about their spiritual experiences. And then, when others don't have those spiritual experiences, they stand in judgment over them. And this implies that in order to be a real Christian, you must have all of these experiences. Trust me when I say, the more you look into the Colossian heresy, the more you start to realize what is happening. And that same problem is in the church today. There are many people touting their spiritual experiences and trying to get you to be a part of them and they're telling you this is real Christianity. Real Christianity is faith in Christ alone. Real Christianity is faith in Christ alone. Does God want more for us? Do we eagerly desire spiritual gifts? And are we supposed to be helps to the world? Yes. Yes. 
But our salvation comes at, at the blood of Jesus alone, at the cross alone. What a powerful idea. This same idea had been presented before in Acts 15. We see it to the Galatian church. Unless you're circumcised, unless you adhere to the Mosaic law, unless you play part in all of these clear spiritual experiences, these clear right experiences, you cannot be saved. Acts 15.1, look it up. Paul is writing to bring the Colossians back from those doubts. Notice in verse 18, Paul says, let no one keep defrauding you. You know what's happening? They're already being defrauded. Wow. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Are there areas in your Christian experience right now where you feel that you've been defrauded? You feel like you've been pulled this way and that way you've been taught wrong. Raise your hand if you feel that you've been that way. I definitely feel that way. There are teachers that I've listened to, people that I've respected, and I'm going, wait, whoa, hold on a second. The truth is, church, this is a group of Christians Nobody's higher and more spiritual than the other one, and the temptation is there to be defrauded. For you to put your trust in anything but Jesus is for you to be defrauded. For you to put your trust, as 1 Corinthians would say, in Apollos or Paul or the local celebrity pastor, whatever it is, is for you to be defrauded. You're missing the point. This is about Jesus, and it always will be about Jesus. If you're led astray, we have a problem. And so Paul says, I don't want you to keep being defrauded. What a powerful thing. So so Paul steps into the Colossian Christian's life, and he actually does what I shared with you before we're supposed to do. Paul is not standing in judgment, dropping a gavel, and condemning false teachers. But he is putting a stop to it because he has rightly assessed their motives. Guess what, church? We can do the same thing today. There are a lot of false teachers around today. And what, it, what the problem is, a lot of people buy their books so you think they're okay. Check their doctrine. That's all I'm saying. Check their doctrine. Dive into what they teach. Find where the Bible confirms it. Otherwise, throw it in the trash can. Okay? And don't give the book away. <laughs> okay? That just makes it worse on the person you gave it to. Don't give the book away. Burn it, okay? I'm going, I'm going back to my dad's day. Burn your CDs. It's, you know, the devil's music. Anyway, no, no, no. I'm sorry about that. <clears throat> okay, let's, let's get back, Nathan. You're, you're losing it here. Another component of the character of these deceivers is that they are inflated without cause by their fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head. I'm going to speak more about that holding fast to the head in a second. But for now, notice that these people are not holding, uh, I'm going to speak more to uh, the, um, the without cause statement in a second. But notice they're not holding fast to Christ. That should tell you who they belong to, not Jesus, okay? If Jesus is an afterthought or an add-on to your doctrine, you have a problem. Please hear me, okay? So detail. Number one, self-abasement. Number two, worship of angels. Number three, taking a stand on visions. The term delights here, they delight in these things, uh, has a translation in the Greek that literally translates willing in. And so a false teacher's, uh, the right translation might be that a false teacher had a joyful commitment to these practices. 
okay? The practices we're talking about, which is self-abasement, false humility, worship of angels, and taking their stand on visions. So let's deal with self-abasement really quick. False humility is what we understand this to be. This, this verse is connected to verse 23 also. An appearance of wisdom, but it's self-made religion, false humility, and asceticism. The problem is that too much, there's too much self in this in this teacher's equation, and no power against sin. Verse 23 is, uh, is where we see that. Look at verse 23. It says, all of these severe treatments of the body are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They don't actually call you away from sin. The problem, again, too much self. Uh, the, uh, this thought has something to do with severe treatment of the body, although that's a hard thing to pin down. But these were seen to be a spiritual experience. So, uh, false humility. If you have somebody who comes into your world and says, well, you know, I'm just a humble servant of Jesus, it's a red flag. Just a humble servant of Jesus. My dad used to tell me when I was a kid, he said, they gave me an award for humility, but they took it away when I wore the pin, right? (laughs) If you wear the pin, you're not humble anymore. You're bragging about it. Okay, so number one, false humility. Pay attention to people like that. Number two, the worship of angels. I want to read you a commentary piece here. This is really powerful. The worship of angels occupied a central place in the false teacher's appeal. The primary question is whether the expression is objective, that is, worship given to angels, or subjective, worship with the angels. And the, and the text does not help us. It is not written in a clear way that allows us to understand it. So we have to go out and look at the context. If the situation reflects what I have said in past weeks and, and what many commentators say, which is a pre-Gnostic or Gentile context in Colossians. I know this seems heady. Sorry for my dorkiness. Worship directed to angels makes good sense, but it's largely unlikely, and here's why. Because he's dealing with Jewish practices, and Jews did not worship angels. Jews had many strict things against the worship of angels. This, in fact, is the biggest obstacle in seeing the false teaching as completely Jewish. Nevertheless, scholars present ample evidence that the phrase could be better understood in a context of rather esoteric Judaism, such as in in Qumran. Since most of the characteristics against which Paul spoke in the epistles can be comfortably placed in a Jewish setting, the weight of evidence must go in that direction. Thus, the subjective seems best. Which means what's happening is people are touting that they're worshiping among the angels. They're ascending to the third heaven. They're in this great, uh, amazing experience where they see all these great visions. We're about to confirm that in just a second too. Guys, when that's being said, be careful. Be careful. I'm not saying that those visions can't happen. Paul saw the third heaven or somebody that he wrote to saw this. But you need to be very careful. Why? Because he points out that these are the problem. False humility and people who practice as though they're worshiping among the angels. What a great spiritual experience. In other words, if you'll have this, you're a real Christian. If you don't, you're not who Jesus wants you to be. Guess whose faith you just put put your faith in? Guess where you put your faith? In people, in false doctrines, in foolish ideas. The third one, and this is where we'll end today. Taking his stand on visions that he has seen. The best best explanation is that false teachers were inducing spiritual experiences and hoping to make them the norm for worship. Uh Uh-oh. 
sounds a whole lot like many charismatic churches today, whether you like my assessment or not. Such a spiritual orientation is a treadmill. Listen to me. Listen to me. The seeker of these experiences can't ever be satisfied. There's always another experience. There's always another experience. There's always another experience. Nothing satisfies. Experience becomes the hermeneutic for the Bible. Hermeneutic is translation method. And so if you don't have the experience, the Bible must be wrong. Let's just change the whole book. You're wrong. How about that? Like, I don't know, but I'm good with being wrong. Okay, I'm good with being wrong. So they're trying to induce these spiritual experiences. And the authority behind this spiritual life, they're calling experience. So-called spiritual experience is therefore everything in some people's Christian life. Now here's, here's where this becomes really challenging. And I, I'm going to just pull it all together right now. Where this becomes challenging is that we are in the same place the Colossian church is today. We're in the same place. Don't fool yourself. We're not better Christians. We're not smarter Christians. We don't have it figured out. It's not like we have a protection against being duped. Okay? The fact that the prosperity gospel has taken over America is proof we get duped quickly. Does God promise that we will prosper? Sure. Sure he does. In him. Sure he does in his kingdom. Sure he does in a future glory that is still awaiting us. But is there a promise that you'll never face persecution in this life? Which, by the way, is pain, which you can't be healed from in this situation. No. As a matter of fact, you might lose your head for Jesus. It's nonsense. We've bought into all kinds of things. Because why? Because we're the same people. So here's the caution that Paul gives to us. Number one, nobody is your judge but Jesus. Amen? Amen. Nobody is your judge but Jesus. But number two, stop being defrauded. <laughs> stop being defrauded. And do you know how you can stop being defrauded? This is going to be revolutionary to you. Read your Bible. <laughs> Read your Bible. Nathan, that thing is hard to understand. No, no it's not. No, it's not. You've been told it's hard to understand, and you stop trying. That's what happened. There's too many smart people in this world that give really good insights to what the Bible says and how we can understand it. People who have died on the vine of context. People who have died on the vine of interpretation. People who have died on the vine of trying to get the church to be better astute, better knowledge, uh, have a better knowledge base. There are people who have given their lives for this. It is not hard to understand. You just need to trust Jesus. You need to submit yourself to it. Okay? You need to get better at your understanding, which means you need to learn. All of us need to do this. And guess what then happens? We can stop being defrauded. There's so many internet memes that I see posted where people say things, and it's just nonsense. And you can say that the Bible says what you want it to say, but you're wrong, and Jesus will show you someday. You don't have to like me. I get it. I get it. Right? But Jesus will show you. This is so important for us to understand. So what I want to challenge you to today, and we're going to continue in our series next week. We're just going to keep moving forward because I'm never going to be able to get through all of that. But we're going to keep moving forward. But what I want to challenge you to is a better life of studying your scriptures. Why? 
Because I don't want you to be defrauded. I don't want you to be led astray. I don't want you to chase on the treadmill of spiritual experience. What I want you to do is be satisfied in Christ alone. And then let him do with you what he will. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.